So, Alex Karp, Palantir. I think one of the most interesting companies in recent time. I am an investor, and I do like the outlook of the company, despite some quite big, I would say, outstanding debates. There is some fascinating insights by the CEO, who I think is a visionary. The next Steve Jobs, you can call him. Before we start, though, and before I break down and add my analysis to some of his comments, excuse the attire. Just just give me a break. Seriously, I'm moving around. Just excuse the attire. I don't know what's going on. Just going to have to rock with it, okay? So I've broken down just a few 30-second clips in which I want to react to and, and give my own analysis uh, in, in response to Alex Karp and his amazing commentary. Let's listen to this first clip at the start of the interview. We spent well over a decade, uh, it, it, and certainly if you look from inception, building products uh, for peace, so you know, so you could distribute vaccines and organize many of the most important institutions in the world. But of course, products of war, we believed it, and believe, if uh, unlike most of our colleagues in Silicon Valley, if you are strong, you prevent the adversary from acting up. And that's why we thought this war might happen. Um, we build products that allow you to do very high-end AI-enabled targeting. Most of the details uh, we can't discuss, but our adversaries are very, very well aware now of their impact. Um, these products have changed the course of history. These products have changed the course of history. And this is a point I want to dive into deeply because I mentioned many, many months ago, and I still hold it true today that Palantir's technologies have represented a very, very large inflection point within the historical routing of what it means to be a software company, what it means for nations to hold software. It's fairly clear to see that the perceptions when it comes to the Russian-Ukrainian war is that prior to kind of the software exponentiality, it was very, very widely acknowledged that Ukraine would basically get destroyed and Russia would very easily walk over Ukrainians. That was kind of the perception, if we're being totally frank. However, software changed this dynamic Massively and the reason is because this is, is, is well, software is exponential. Uh, having software, good software that produces alpha in comparison to sole productivity, something we'll touch upon in a moment, is very, very necessary, not only for companies, but more importantly, in the current day, nations too. I think it's fair to say um, that software is analogous to last generation's nuclear armory, if you can put it that way. Software is now necessary and it's becoming part of the nuclear weaponry, the armory of a nation. And later, the armory of a company. There is an emphasis on software that produces alpha. And there is a difference to be made here. Um, software that produces productivity, software that produces alpha. I think these are two distinct differentiated categories. You have software that enhances productivity. Something like Zoom or something like Snowflake, which is, don't get me wrong, incredibly useful for an organization. However, alpha is just that slight uptick. When you have software that produces alpha, what this genuinely means is that Software represents the cardiovascular system of your organization. In other words, in very simple, beautiful, simple English, the software provided by Palantir produces alpha. In other words, the software by Palantir makes your company more differentiated, not less differentiated. And that is a major, major selling point for organizations. So I think it's important to understand when it comes to the context of the specifically Ukrainian war and how this will have ripple effects for many, many countless years across governments and nations when it comes to the adoption of good software solutions. It's important to understand that this TAM is only increasing, and Alex Karp hints towards this in a few moments. Whilst it was of the opinion in the past that Palantir's government does have a glass ceiling of some sort, I think that's a bit too reductionistic, actually. And in consideration of the increased budgets that we're continually seeing from the DoD, Piper Sander provided an amazing report on this, by the way, some time ago. Despite the kind of increase we're seeing, I do think that 
as software becomes more fundamental and equivalent to nuclear weaponry, uh, it's far too reductionistic to just believe that there's a sole kind of glass ceiling that is just going to instantaneously be halted, thus Palantir will fail to grow within the government. It seems that government growth is still um, a path for exponentiality when it comes to increased contracts, and at least according to the guidance provided by Palantir in the commentary that we're going to see momentarily, Palantir still believes that there's huge, huge upside within the government, specifically because they have such a differentiated product. Uh, they changed the power structure of America, and perhaps most importantly as a former academic, uh, our adversaries used to run around the world, most, we have a very significant business outside of America saying, well, America has liberty and entertainment and freedom, but we're better at fighting wars, we're better at building products of war, we're better at internal and, and, and surveillance. And now, lo and behold, it turns out those of us who are purveyors, not just of war products, but of liberty, uh, most importantly, the United States of America, are not only better at entertainment and having fun, we're also better at building products of war. And that narrative, I think, is going to change the world, is already changing the world, because of, of the many things we're not allowed to say that have happened in the Ukraine, our adversaries know every single one of them. It's pretty interesting to see that after the Ukrainian war, um, and during kind of the initial phases in which it was fairly obvious in which Palantir, at least software, the Western software, had had a huge impact upon the outcome of that war. And it's still having a major impact today, don't get me wrong, but it was interesting to see around a few months ago, you recognised it, and there was leaks that Russian forces, that Russian special services were creating products in which were literally equivalent to foundry. It, it, exactly the same when it, come to, when it comes to UI, uh, when it comes to the kind of uh, perceived capabilities of the Russian software. So I think Carp is a point. There's a huge change occurring. And I believe in life, often you have to take a, a commonly unpopular opinion and you have to have conviction upon you, that opinion. And you have to be truthful and correct with the outcome of that opinion. And that is how you produce alpha in life. And I think that is the case clearly with Palantir. And not to toot my own horn, but in the past few months, by the way, a lot of things that I have held conviction upon have come right. It seems to all have come together very, very quickly. Everything that I had a high conviction upon, it seems that these are slowly revealing to be truthful. And it seems to all have happened in quick succession, which is strange. One of the things that I think I'm correct on, and I have been correct on for some time, is the US versus China. And I've made the case in the past that China is not going to beat the US. And the reason is why is because it's rooted in atomic reasons, namely game theory, incentives, and human organization. Ray Dalio seems to believe that the US is going to beat China instantaneously because China is growing faster, because China has more people. I'm not really sure his reasoning. It's quite sketchy. He's had a close relationship with China for some time, which makes me kind of conspiratorial in a sense regarding his... Um, kind of perceived outlook on China and his relationship with China. But I'm not exactly sure the reasons to why Ray Dalio believes China is going to win. I think he uses some arbitrary markers such as healthcare and so on and so forth. And don't get me wrong, there are issues with the US, but there's something that the US has, the West has, and which is just not prevalent within tyranny, within dictatorships, within totalitarian states such as China. And this is human organization, information flows, and good incentive alignments. In other words, game theory. The bottom line is the US is far better than China when it comes to building world revolutionary companies and when it comes to radical technological innovative breakthroughs and which will disrupt the fabric of society. Fundamentally, and as has been historically proven many, many hundreds of years ago, Despite the fact there was always this perception that China was ahead, it turns out that incentives led China to failure. Fundamentally, I believe, 
Incentives in China are skewed. Information does not flow properly due to the dictatorship-styled political structure in which incentivizes internal gossip, internal politics in comparison to truth-seeking. And I think, actually, you're seeing that clearly now. What you're seeing now when it comes to the COVID lockdowns is that people within government clearly are afraid to speak out and present a contrarian view. In other words, people are afraid to disrupt the perceived truth by Xi Jinping. Instead, they prefer to play status games with him, to rub shoulders with him, to agree with him on anything and everything in order to garner promotion. In China, specifically within the government, but also rippled across every single organization by effect, what you can see clearly is that within China, people are disincentivized when it comes to truth-seeking. Because truth-seeking is punished, and this was the case with Jack Ma, this was the case with countless business leaders, who spoke out and tried to present a contrarian view, a differentiated view from the normalcy, and what happened? Well, it's fairly clear to see what happened. Jack Ma was hidden away for tens and tens of months. Nobody knew where he was. The Western media speculated that Jack Ma had been taken away by the government and putting handcuffs or some absurd reason, whatever it was. But regardless, the truth still remains. The point still remains. In China, there is a disincentivization of real truth-seeking. Instead, there is an incentivization to rub shoulders with Xi Jinping within government, to make sure you're in his good books in, in order to avoid the danger associated with getting on his wrong side, if that makes sense. And overall, when you kind of disincentivize dialogue, when you disincentivize truth-seeking, when you incentivize being on the good side of Xi Jinping by rubbing shoulders and playing internal gossip and political games, uh, holistically, this disincentivizes and reduces the probabilities of radical technological change within China, which is going to disrupt the fabric of society, I believe. In the West, this is not the case. In the West, the government does not overtake your business prematurely upon certain completion. In the West, you can bear the fruits of your labor. In the West, all of the factors that I just mentioned are mute. I want to also mention the importance of palliative within the government sector. The fact that the government is innately collaborative, and this is a major, major, major point that many people don't understand. The government sector of palliative is innately collaborative, meaning the network effects can be shared and replicated hundreds and hundreds of times. They're shared across departments, across governments, in order to increase utility of the platform. The reason as to why is because obviously every single siloed government department, they are on the same team for most part, and thus there is an incentive to share insights and to share network effects in order to increase utility of the overall platform. And if you know anything about anything, if you know anything about Palantir specifically, then you'll know that that increased network effect creation is also replicated and transferred into the overall utility of the platform. And thus, I guess, evidently increases the utility of the platform within the commercial space too. This is a very, very unique position that Palantir has, and they're so ingrained within the government now, and they're becoming increasingly more ingrained within the government now, that it's fascinating to see the fact that this collaboration between departments, the sharing of network effects, leads to basically a flywheel of utility for the platform, I believe. Kopp also mentioned within his commentary that the US is a leading indication for technological adoption. And he mentioned that, that the US is best technological adoption and Palantir is seeing the most growth within here. Specifically, he also states within the commercial space, the product is literally flying off the shelf, hundreds and hundreds percentage growth points for Palantir over a year-over-year -year basis, he mentions within his commentary. And it's interesting because you have people like Sasha Yashin, who are not the biggest fans of Palantir, 
And they use this and kind of twist it and argue that Alex Karp is making an excuse when it comes to the lack of adoption within European nations. I don't think that is the case. I think when you look back historically, impartially, what you can see is very clear. You can see that the US is by far the nation in which, based on incentives in game theory once again, is the fastest at adoption of new innovative technological breakthroughs. This is why I've argued for some time within many of my writings on Dantons.com that the US is a leading variable when it comes to the success outside of the US and into Europe, so on and so forth. We should focus on US commercial growth in terms of customer accounts specifically in order to compute the success of Palantir elsewhere. The US is often the most agile. The US is often a great leading variable when it comes to the success of Palantir outside of the US, specifically in Europe, so on and so forth. Um, and so the US government has been iterating and adopting and adopting and adopting. Quite frankly, the larger problem is many of our allies are living in the 70s where hardware alone could work and sending all their money on local industry that isn't really that good at software. So I think the onus of us in technology is to put to really invest. You know, of course, most companies can't be focused on the US military the way we are because it's core to our mission, but they can't be focused last on the US military and then complain that it's too hard. Is it changing now because of Ukraine? Well, which there's, there's a lot that's changing. So an already fairly good situation is getting better for technology companies because the U.S. economy and U.S. institutions in general are very pragmatic. They're much less ideological than in other countries. They're like, well, what worked? How did it work? How much did we spend on it? And what were the results? Is a very American way of looking at something. And it is exactly the way you look at tech implementation, whether it's a, a company or a government. And, the, you know, there's the outside version of what you're allowed to say, but the inside version uh, with all the data, a lot of which is classified, you see that we, it is not just a banality that we are in a software world. We are in a software world. And what's also interesting is what is, the Amer what is America indisputably the best in the world at doing? Building software. So it's like, well, Sashi you can even take his viewpoint in which is, focused upon Alex Karp lying and making an excuse apparent is slower adoption outside of the US, in which I think is a fair criticism, by the way. But I mean, just, just look at London for a goddamn second, please, people. London is terrible. You can't even walk, walk down the road with a nice watch on before you get stabbed in the back by someone on a moped. It's like, really now? Really? Let's just look at this impartially. Europe is riddled with regulation. Europe is literally going backwards and backwards in time. Look at this situation we have now with Christmas when it comes to gas. It's like, Europe is very stupid. So I, I, I think it's very, very logical to say that, well, maybe there's some truth to what Carp is saying. We know that the US historically has adopted technology far faster than any other nation we know, and therefore can extrapolate from that, that the US is a good leading variable when it comes to success elsewhere. And we know that London is a bloody shithole, and therefore, I think it's fair to say that Europe is riddled with regulation, and thus companies, by definition, are incredibly slow when it comes to change, agility, so on and so forth. They're probably incredibly bureaucratic, and they've probably been riddled with ideological nonsense, political nonsense, in which, well, I suppose it could be the case within the US too. But you see the point that I'm making. Just focus on some case studies to drive my point home. Tyson Food saved 200 million USD within a year using Palantir's alpha-producing technological solution. Note within the presentation that the CFO also did state that the management originally pushed back. There was friction associated with adoption. And you can imagine that regardless of how good a technological solution is, 
There's always going to be that, that, that kind of friction. The CFO is off spending money on his credit card for the organization. And high-level management is questioning whether this is a good idea. And this ties into something also I want to mention. Doug Philippone, the Defence League Global at Palantir Technologies, mentioned with an interview that we covered about five months ago on Dantons.com, that Palantir fundamentally is, a, is in a very strange position as a software company. He states within his own words that as a software company, often it can be hard from an outsider's POV to understand which software works and which software doesn't, which software produces alpha and which software does not. From an outsider's viewpoint, it can be, it can be very hard to understand which software works and which software doesn't. And thus, it's very hard to sell software unless you have actually good working, functioning software, according to Doug Philippone. So I think it's just interesting to note the case studies, despite the fact Palantir saved $200 million at Tyson Foods, originally when it came to the initial adoption of Palantir, within the organization, there was friction associated with this. And perhaps that's something Palantir should work upon. How can they ease that friction associated with adoption? Cup also mentions that there's a huge TAM increase from $150 billion, as noted within the original filing at DPO, upwards of $900 billion, according to Alex Carp within his latest interview. And this reiterates something I've been saying for a, for a very, very long, long, long time. You could either take the very linear approach of looking at the DPO filing and stating, oh, only $150 billion TAM. Like, that's not really a lot, is it? Or you could take a more, once again, contrarian view, a more controversial view, a less linear kind of thinking view. And you could extrapolate Palantir and compare them to the likes of Facebook, in which I've done many, many times in the past, in which Facebook followed a very similar TAM. Often you, you can't be too linear in life, I believe. You have, to be, you have to think outside the box sometimes. What you can see within Facebook's case is they started small and monopolized. They started at Harvard, high status people, high quality revenue, and then they monopolized down the chain, so on and so forth. If you were investing within Facebook back in the inception phases and you solely saw the fact that they had a TAM of about 1,000 people at Harvard, would you have invested? Now, obviously, the examples aren't specifically kind of comparable, but you get the point that I'm making. Just don't think too linearly in life, please. Think exponentially, think differently, think like a contrarian, a natural contrarian, I think is the main point. The point that I'm making, Palantir starting small and monopolizing, getting high quality revenue, getting high quality customers and high status customers, and then improving their software and coming down the value chain. One of the major criticisms of Palantir at inception was the fact that they only had about a few hundred customers, hundred and so customers. But if you actually looked at the quality of those customers, you would have seen that those customers were the best customers in the world. They are the highest quality revenue in the history of humanity. Just to kind of reinforce my point, I think it's really interesting. So in the latter half of the interview, the commercial business is touched upon by the interviewer. And kudos to CNBC, by the way, for being so awesome, providing these regular interviews. On the topic of Palantir being misunderstood by Wall Street, in which Carp mentions within the interview, I want to read you something that I've been researching within the case of Warren Buffett and his commentary on retail investors versus the institutional investors who are bound by ideological nonsense. Listen to this. Interestingly, Buffett believes that retail or private investors have an advantage over institutions. Retail investors have the free ability to let dozens, even hundreds of companies go by and you do not have to take up the option of buying, whereas institutions are often forced to purchase equities within a set period of time. Often when it comes to understanding a company such as Palantir, qualitative and subjective factors are leading variables, intangible factors are leading variables of the future financials of a set company. And that can often come with a lot of controversy. For example, one qualitative intangible factor I like to look at is the use of talent and 
the talent that is going towards an organization and how that can later reflect into the financials and the growth of that set company. In technology, if you know anything about anything, you would know that clearly technology has an exponential trend. The top 1% of talent within an organization literally produces 99% of the value. This is not the case when it comes to physical labor. This is not the case when it comes to driving a taxi, so on and so forth. In technology, the top 1% of talent is literally the main driving factor for your organization. And thus, I look at intangible factors such as structure, talent, organizational culture, organizational fitness, incentives, game theory, as a way to compute investments and thus ensure that an investment is likely to be successful in the future. Being iconoclastic often wins when it comes to investing, I believe, from my research, from my experience. Maybe I'm wrong, let's see. But the point being is that Wall Street is not bound by this blissful kind of freedom in which retail investors have. Instead, Wall Street is subject to basic ideological nonsense and restrictions in which force them to act with their short-term mindset and thus the bandwidth associated with investing within certain companies is, 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 is really skewed because you have to invest in hundreds of different companies. As an analyst, you have to research hundreds of different companies. Similarly to why Jim Cramer fails, it's because he has to know hundreds of different companies in, in very small levels of detail. And thus he can't go deep, he can't dive deep on an equity, and thus he can't get access to the beauty and the secrets associated with obsessions over a certain company. I believe, just my two cents. Overall, still bullish on palliative, fascinating company. Let's see if I'm right in five years time. I think I will be, I think you will be too. See you soon.